at a certain point, they're just like, we're moving. And it literally, when we moved, it felt like I came to another planet and it was like a dream. And I thought for probably a year that I would wake up and this isn't real. The world was so different. Like when you walk into stores, everything's full. It was just such a completely different reality from what I was used to. And it's pretty magical. America's amazing and people really don't understand. If you go to a third world country now, if you go to Cuba or something, other than it's a lot older and they have all Russian cars and they're all old and run down, but it really kind of reminded me of there. There's no advertisements anywhere. There was no billboards, there was nothing. And that's kind of how Russia was. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Oh man, sometimes you record an episode and you know it's an instant classic. The episode I just did with Artem Tepler is one of those. Man, he has such a good story. And we talk about him immigrating to America when he was nine years old from Siberia. And just a lot of what he dealt with growing up and what that looked like, what it looked like to grow up in Siberia, what it looked like to immigrate at a young age to America. And you can just really hear in his voice how appreciative he is for this country. And if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know um, I love this country as well. And so it was just a breath of fresh air to start. We talk a lot about the business that he's built. He is a developer uh, in LA and has built quite a portfolio, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of apartments there. He's now expanded into Texas. We get into a lot of the nuances of how he runs his business and how he's become an expert in construction. And then we really kind of talk about what he's seeing in the market and the next few years of his business. And so this was a really great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. And thank you for continuing to listen. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data, both on an asset and market level, and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. I'm really impressed by our team at Fort Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces, 
You can sign up for our newsletter at FortCapitalLP.com. Artem, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. It is a true pleasure. You got your Zens in. I got my Zens. Got your coffee. I know people are going to hate online, but this is the best thing I've discovered in the last two months and I'm not stopping it. Why is it the best thing that you've discovered in the last two months? I don't have to drink as much coffee. It gives me energy. I'm not foggy headed. I'm not. I just think clear. It just makes everything just better. And if you just take a lot of coffee, you're just jittery. This just absolutely. I mean, if you listen to Humorman, he gives all the benefits of nicotine. Yes, it's addicting, but so is my testosterone for the rest of my life. That's Mm -hmm. addicting too. So I have to take that for the rest of my life. And I'm just a better human being for it. And I'm going to keep doing it. I love it. And you take it, you literally will pop one and get on the treadmill for an hour. I'll I'll pop them the treadmill. I just pop them throughout the day, just eat them and just makes me think clear as a kid i used to take adderall yeah and that would help me focus and i actually think this is a better medication for add and for focus i could sit there do spreadsheets with it which i hate doing (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk about that (laughs) i could sit here and do spreadsheets with it with a coffee get zoomed in have energy i could actually go no carb diet and i haven't been doing carbs for the last two months yeah and i've lost close to 30 pounds and it's been amazing. And I think it's all because of Zen's. He's coming in straight from LA, down 20 pounds, Zen in, Zen in lip, totally focused. And we're going to start this conversation in Siberia, where you were born. Mm-hmm. And you, you immigrated here when you were nine. But give me some context. I've never been to Siberia. To be honest with you, I couldn't even point it out on a map. What was it like growing up there? And then I want to talk about like, what's it like? What does the United States mean to you? When we were growing up there, there was no social media. There was no anything. So you didn't grow up without much, even though we as a family did well because my dad conducted business, which was actually illegal to do in Russia. He was buying and selling cars from a pro- for profit, and he would make more money buying and selling cars than people would make in like three years worth of working. And he almost got put in jail for it. My grandma, my grandfather was really high up in the military, my mom's dad, and he actually pulled him out of jail for when he got arrested for buying and selling cars. So what America means for me is just, it's complete land of opportunity where you can grow and scale your business without worrying of going to jail. You can make a profit, everything is possible here. I feel like if you work hard, there's just, it's just the land of opportunity. And I look at it, it doesn't matter what business you choose. If you choose to get into the top 1% of that business, whether it's car washes, whether it's anything, if you just choosing to get to the top 1%, the more money you move around, I think you just posted, the more money kind of sticks to you. And as long as you're moving big percentage of capital around, it sticks to you and you just focus on that. You just focus on that. And a lot of that I feel like is marketing and sales. Why is it in Siberia? I guess it's illegal or why is it, why is it illegal to make profit there? Communism, government ran everything. They assigned your job. They told you what to do. And there was waiting lists for years to buy and sell cars. So my dad, people's time would come up, these coal miners, my grandfather was a coal miner and they wouldn't have the money to buy it. So he'd take their spot, buy the car, bring it to another part of the country and sell it for a profit. And it was just illegal. The government, it was called the Russian word speculant and that it was basically a speculator and it was illegal to kind of speculate on things and make a profit. And so... If your dad had been caught, what would have happened to him? I mean, he, he was caught. He got put in jail. And for and my grandfather 
was in charge of basically in Siberia, he was really high, high up, it was a colonel, being in charge of where everyone's kids got sent into the army. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot of connections and everything in that environment is done by connections. And it was just, who do you know to get you out? And he was able to get my dad out of a couple of jams. So in America, you drive down any street, there's car dealerships everywhere. Everybody's selling, making money. The car dealer at the club is always the guy that's playing golf and having fun. In Siberia, you're selling cars, you're going to jail. The rich people were everyone that worked in the government and that was connected to the government. And it was all weird, weird way how they made profit. And there was no car dealerships. And that's when he went back to Russia. Everything after the 90s, got completely organized, but his skill set was never that of a car dealership because he would do a couple of cars and you just buy and sell. So his skill set never developed to go to that level. So he struggled after kind of the fall of communism. And then he got into kind of taking over companies and stuff like that over there. And we could talk about that later. But he, uh, I mean, to me, he was just the guy that started his grandfather as a coal miner and he just kept pushing and pushing. We started in Siberia. And you couldn't even buy houses. You had to literally trade houses. So he traded his way into Moscow. And the way you would do it is literally you, he had to like divorce my mom on paper, marry some woman, move into her house, and then take over her house, then divorce her on paper, pay her money to have a house kind of in Moscow. And he traded all the way up from like side Siberia to like another city and then basically two blocks to the red square by the time we were moving and he made it to like the top of i guess what you could make in russia and at that point he thought he was rich he had bags of money my mom was holding but by american standards was nowhere near rich but that's like the russian 1031 exchange <laughs> basically <laughs> i mean that's what it was it was just you had to literally the government gave you a house and then you had to trade your houses with people and you had to pay them extra money. And then you couldn't just move wherever you wanted. So you literally had to kind of marry someone to move from like one area to another. And it's pretty wild. And then how were like the oligarchs looked like from an American perspective, you see these oligarchs, they all have huge yachts and planes. And like, how did that, how was that looked upon from your position? It's looked upon, honestly, I look at it like the whole country in 91 just got torn apart. And there's a couple of guys that the government owned everything and everyone that was connected to the government took over all the major industries. There's like the nickel guy, the metal guy, the oil guys, and they were all somehow connected to the people that were in power and they consolidated their power and took over all of that. So in America that developed the industries there, it was just taken from the government. It was all the resources of the Russian country that were given to those people. So in communism, like what do communists value? Like at the top, like what is the top brass for the Russian government value in people? Like what makes a good citizen? I think it was just everything the government tried to organize. And if you've ever seen the DMV mm -hmm. and the government doesn't do a good job of organizing anything. Yeah. So the government shouldn't be running a country and they do everything inefficiently. Yeah. And it was just basically that, everything done inefficiently, but everyone was kind of equal before social media. Everyone lived in these almost projects. So there were high rises that had no fancy facades outside. 
And, but everyone was equal. It was very safe when I was growing up. I remember being six years old, getting onto buses, riding to different areas, something that I can't even imagine doing in America, but it was very homogenous in Siberia. Everyone looked the same and it was, it felt pretty safe. And I had like almost a Tom Sawyer like experience of just going on bikes, going fishing with my grandfather, riding a motorcycle with a side cart, no helmets with like three of my cousins on there going fishing. And it was actually kind of magical, but it feels like a different life. It feels yeah. like a different planet. And I've gone back since then and everything almost looks like America. Back then there was nothing in stores when you go in. I remember waiting online, Chiquita Bananas kind of came in and I waited online for like, my mom sent me for probably like hours and I got to the front of the line and there was only the crappy, shitty brown bananas <laughs> at the bottom. So I got those and I ate them. And then I got so sick, I couldn't eat bananas for probably a decade till I started getting into my, putting them into my smoothies. And only then did I readjust to being able to eat bananas anyway from that one experience of eating bananas, waiting online for them for years. Oh my gosh. All right. So then you're nine, dad comes home or how, how, how did the plan to immigrate to America come to be? So my dad was just a curious guy. And yep. at a certain point, my mother's Jewish, my dad's Orthodox Christian. Okay. And there was a huge line just outside of Moscow. My dad pulls over. He's like, what's this line for? Everyone's like, we're waiting for visas to immigrate to America. So he's like, all right, that sounds good. You know, he's always, he's always a guy that kind of, <laughs> he's always a guy that kind of just tries to better in life. And then uh, he took his spot. And then we found out that my grandmother's brother immigrated to Highland Park, New Jersey after World War II. Family was killed in the Holocaust. And we, my grandmother wouldn't even tell anyone because my grandfather was in the army. So he didn't want, she didn't want anyone to know. Then he found this out. So somehow he sponsored us and we came here as Jewish refugees and the Jewish community really helped us out, gave us hand us down clothing and really just paid for like six months of, I think, living expenses, paid for English school, paid for my mom to go to, I don't know if they paid for my mom to go to beauty school because my mom cleaned houses at that time when they came here, but it was really, they just helped out. So we came here as Jewish refugees. My dad kind of took the long, ride along as a Orthodox Christian because my mom was Jewish. And we had to go through all the experiences of uh, discrimination that my family experienced. I didn't really experience it at nine years old, but my mom has experience where people are like, hey, go back to Israel. My grandfather was able to get as high as he could. And it was pretty remarkable how high he got up being Jewish. And I think it just was the fact that he was in Siberia and there was no Jews in Siberia. So he literally just like, he had an option and they're like, you're being shipped off to Siberia. And I guess he's like, all right, well, I'm staying in the army. He's like, either leave the army or go to Siberia. So he got shipped there. And then my mom and dad married. And in Russian passport, when you're born, it actually shows like your like Jew is in your like birth certificate. So it says my mom's Jewish and her birth, uh, birth certificate says Jewish. So I went to register and my dad goes, you're Jewish. And my mom's like, yeah, like, is, is that a problem? He's like, no, I just never met one before. And it was one of those, he just didn't know. Yeah. He's driving home or whatever, sees this, gets a line, applies for it. We get it. 
and then we're moving. And then the how like is that like days, weeks, months, years? I think it was probably a year process. But I remember when we were moving, it was happening during the basically the overthrow of Russia. So we were like moving in August. I believe it was ninety or ninety one, and literally the whole country is kind of falling apart. They don't know. We're like trying to get a flight out. We're on standby. Are we going to go or not? We had a couple of moves to the airport, a couple of back. So I finished three grades in actually Belarus. For My mom and dad kind of got separated. She moved with her family back to, uh, to Belarus. I did first, second, and third grade in Minsk. Then we moved to Moscow. And from there, it was just, I just remember as a little kid watching Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger on TV, watching movies. And at a certain point, they're just like, we're moving. And it literally, when we moved, it felt like I came to another planet and it was like a dream. And I thought for probably a year that I would wake up and this isn't real. The world was so different. Like when you walk into stores, everything's full. It was just such a completely different reality from what I was used to. And it's pretty magical. I mean, America's like, America's amazing and people really don't understand. If you go to a third world country now, if you go to Cuba or something, Cuba is probably the closest thing. It's, it's a time capsule. I've went to Cuba through Mexico and it's probably other than it's a lot older and the, they have all Russian cars and they're all old and run down, but it really kind of reminded me of there. There's no advertisements anywhere. There was no billboards. There's nothing. And that's kind of how Russia was. When you got here and you said you were living in that dream, you said the stores were full. What other things, again, you're nine years old, but I'm sure these memories are like deeply ingrained in you. Like what other things were like, I cannot believe this is my life now. I mean, it was just the hardest thing was they put me into a Jewish school where half the days in Hebrew, half yeah. a day in English in fourth grade. And they were trying to force Hebrew on me half the day while I still didn't know English. Yeah. So that was a very weird experience. And they tried to instantly force religion, which I was supposed to. I knew being Jewish was bad in Russia. You're supposed to hide it. And I went to a place where people were yarmulkes and they were very proud of it. And I'd like wear it and I'd take it off. And I was just, it was ingrained in me that you just don't show it. And that was a pretty hard experience trying to learn English and Hebrew half the day. And that was, that was challenging. And then fifth grade, I went to public schools and that's it. I mean, it was just way different. All right. And we're going to get to what you're doing today in a little bit, but this is good stuff. What do you think your life would have looked like had you never come to America? What would, where would you be right now? You probably wouldn't have a Zen in your mouth. I probably wouldn't have a Zen in my mouth. I might, but I'll be honest. I went back there and I have a stepbrother there. Now the world looks very similar. He lives in Moscow mm -hmm. and they have everything we have. So it could have been okay. Or if I grew up in the nineties, which are very violent time, and I would have been a teenager, I could have been dead. I, it could have been good. And I look at all the developers, it was an emerging country. I could have made it in business, but business is done completely differently. It could have gone either way. I could, I could have been very successful in business or I could have been dead. This isn't a political question, but given your experience and given that a lot of maybe the way we view what's going on in Russia today is kind of a storyline, like you have an opinion on what's going on. Is this reminiscent of where you, we were 30, 40 years ago where things are collapsing? Has this always been the strategy? Like, do you have an opinion on that? On what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Today. 
Yeah, I have a strong opinion on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. And I think Putin had his red line. I think NATO expanded to his door. I think people weren't listening to his red line. And I think, you know, unfortunately, and when we were there, Ukrainians were our cousins, our brothers, everything else. And I think America for since 2004 has been kind of influencing them to rip away Ukraine from Russia. And I think this is what there was. I think there was a revolution in 2014 that was sponsored by America. And I think, you know, after that, basically there was a pro-Russian leaning president, they overthrew him. And then they started really discriminating and there was a huge kind of pogroms on, which is just attacks on Russian, ethnic Russian people. And the Eastern part of Ukraine, they're all Russian speaking. They considered themselves Russian, Western, they didn't. And that country is really, it's divided by how USSR used to get it divided, how USSR divided. And Crimea used to be a part of Russia for hundreds of years. And then somehow, like, I think it was Khrushchev that kind of gave it to them. It was closer to Ukraine. They're like, you manage it. But it's always, that's where we used to vacation when we were younger. And that was always Russian territory. It's a Russian military base. And I think Putin, strategically for him, it was just like, he can't have NATO there. And to me, it's the reverse Cuban Missile Crisis. So what ends up happening? Like, how does this end? And why why have we given them $75 billion? I don't know what, they're giving $75 billion. I think they're trying to make Russia weaker. And after the sanctions of Crimea, what happened is they took away everything. But from what I've seen and what I've heard, it's actually making Russia stronger because A, they started manufacturing all the things they used to import. Now they just switched their trade. They pushed Russia over closer to China. And I think in general, the Russian economy, it's, they have a lot of natural resources. They're just reorienting from the West to the East. And I think they never wanted it. Putin just wanted to negotiate kind of like as equal partners. I don't think he was ever kind of respected as let's say equal partner. And he said it in his 2007 Munich speech, like Ukraine is the red line. He's like, you're not going to basically be able to put weapons at our border and how he lined up right before this whole invasion. He had an exercise right at the border. He never wanted that. They're scared. And, you know, in Russia's defense, we look at it, there's 30 million Russians that got died in, died in World War II. America didn't enter it until 19, I believe, 44. So there was Russian Jews, everyone was uh, killed. And every time Russia was invaded through Napoleon, it was invaded through Ukraine territory. For him, he needed that as a buffer state mm. for the safety of Russia. And they just didn't respect it. From my understanding, everyone's like, well, if he's going to take Ukraine, he's going to keep pushing forward. There's nothing in Russia's history, like in the recent history that shows Russia's really wants to expand and grow. But he said for their security, and it's not everyone thinks it's just Putin. It's basically all of Russian elite kind of think the same exact way. They've been worried about NATO expansion to the border. And you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, what happened? Imagine China going to Canada and taking over Canada and setting up their bases either in Canada or Mexico. That's kind of what's happening. I just learned more about that whole situation than I have in the last year. That's super interesting. And it's the saddest thing because when I grew up there, we were the same people. They were just cousins. And anyone that I knew met from Ukraine, they're like, where are you from? They're like, I'm from Russia. Now they're all from Ukraine. They're not from Russia anymore. But 
it's the saddest, it's the saddest, most tragic thing seeing how many Russians and how many Ukrainians. And I look at them, if I was there, there's a chance I could have been drafted in the army if I was born there. And I see it from the Ukrainian perspective because from their perspective, Russia's invading their country and they're defending their people, their people, which is something there's strong nationalistic pride that you want to defend your country. And I completely understand it, but I don't look at Ukraine was ever a free country. It was either dependent on one side or another. They're just this small country that's a weird buffer state between superpowers. And unfortunately, this is a fight that's going on. And when it happened, it's tragic. I mean, I see it and I just feel for the Ukrainian side and I feel for the Russian soldiers that don't want to be there. And I watch the videos and they're all speaking the same language to each other. They all look the same. They speak the same. And it's just the same people just kind of attacking each other all for what? Just so, you know, your politics, politicians are kind of doing trade with one side versus another. So I think it's just tragic for all the families. It's terrible. Wars is terrible. If Russia takes Ukraine, then what is there? Is that then what ha like from your perspective, like what happens? I think they're going to I mean, that is what's going to happen. It's now they had the Minsk agreements that, you know, the politicians came in. They said they were never really going to honor it was just to buy time. So Putin has completely no trust of America. So in the end, this is going to be done and negotiated on Russian terms, how it will end. And they've probably taken so much. They're going to take so much resources. There's like the river right through it. I forgot. Uh, I think it's Nepro River. It's probably going to go up to there. I don't think he has any urge to take the western part of Ukraine where people are more Catholic, Ukrainian speaking. But the eastern part where if you look on the map, how they vote, where all the Russian speakers are, I think he's going to end up with that. I think he's going to end up with Odessa. And I think he's going to end up with a lot of territory. And there's no taking back. There's no taking back Crimea. There's nothing. I mean, Russia has a lot of nuclear weapons. And unless you want World War III, I don't think anyone wants that. And it's just going to end up like that. I think politicians need to come to terms and just negotiate. And he's always saying, I watch in Russian. He wants to negotiate. His thing was he needs an agreement that they will never join NATO, like written down. And uh, he doesn't want NATO bases at his borders. Which would be the, to our extent, the same as China setting up bases on the Canadian border or Mexican exactly. border to America. That's how Americans exactly. could think about it. And Americans think NATO is this just anti-war coalition. And he doesn't view it like that. He, the, you know, I understand why it was there when Russia was USSR, it was a communist. I actually get it. I think America didn't want communism to spread anywhere. And I think it's a poisonous ideology. I wouldn't want it to spread anywhere in America either. But now it's not that anymore. But Russia's still kind of the bad guy. And I don't I know that there's I, there's levels of it that I don't see. We only yeah. see such a small percentage of it. It's just that I get the benefit of watching propaganda from both sides, from the American and Russian side. And I kind of get to see it from the two points. And Putin has been, if anything, very consistent in his statements through the years. And he's just basically saying what he said in 2007 speech in Munich. I mean, he said it, he's like, this is our red line and people just didn't believe him. Yep. That's interesting. Golly. I was going to talk that you're a, you were a black belt when you're 13 and you said you're a fighter and maybe we'll just, uh, lead into what you're doing today. There's two things that popped up is really interesting. 
you were you got your first black belt when you were 13. And I think you're working on a second black I'm belt. I'm like 13 years into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And between my dad's cancer, business, I can only dedicate so much time. I think if, you, if you're if you young, you're going five, six days a week, multiple times a day, you could get it in five years. Average time kind of for hobbyists like me is 10 to 15 years. So I'm like two years into my brown belt and I probably have another two years. I train with a ten, like the Michael Jordan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like elite 10 times world champion, his son's a world champion. And I'm two years into it, and I probably have another two years to go to black belt. But it's one of those things where, I'll be honest, my body just at 40 hurts now. Thanks to TRT and ice baths, I'm able to recover a little bit. But it's one of those things where some people are like, I just love it. I can't wait to go. No, I'm committed and I go. But every time I go at night, I'm like, oh, like yeah, I'm going to go against some 20-year-old that's just going to. It's just going to be hard. I mean, there's no easy roles in my school. Yeah. I mean, people travel from all over the country to train with this guy. So you get some killer 20 year olds that are in shape. And even though they might be a belt or two lower, I mean, they're like 20 years younger and it's not the same thing. Well, the, and the reason I thought that was interesting is two of the investors I respect the most are all on their own jujitsu journeys. I know I've I've been in New York a few times over the last year. There's dojos that a lot of the Wall Street guys go to kind of midday. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is just like, how do why is jujitsu and business the type of business that we do seem to collide? What what about jujitsu makes business people interested in it? Man, I was like, I'm already thinking of my black belt speech that I'm gonna write. There <laughs> and I've been thinking about it since I was probably a white belt. There are so many similarities. There are so many similarities that go like a lot of it is just a problem solving. And a lot of it, I think in business, we all start off as white belts. And and they say in jujitsu is a black belt's a white belt that didn't quit. Yeah. So you start off as a white belt, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know how ineffective you are as a man at fighting. And you go in there, and I was, I think I was like 190 pounds big, and I went with this 140 pound kid, and he just literally had me in an arm bar. He had me in a triangle. Like it was, I didn't know how ineffective I was as a man at fighting. I thought because I did Taekwondo as a kid, I was like, oh, I can fight. And I just had no idea. And it's really chess with your body that you move. But the beautiful part of it is that you can go and you start at a level. And then you're around people the same level and you have people above. And it's same thing as in business. You learn and you move up different belts and levels. And I always compare kind of real estate as different belts. Like you start off, you might be wholesaling houses and you're starting off for like broker. I don't want to say brokerage, but like, let's say you're wholesaling houses and then you're doing flips. It's like a white and blue level. Yeah. And then you're moving up and you build a custom home, it might be purple belt level. And to me, like, Everyone could define different spectrums of it by different belts, but you always see people operating at a higher level. And I always wanted the black belt level in jiu-jitsu, and I always wanted black belt level in business. But the interesting part is that once you get into jiu-jitsu, you realize there's such a huge spread between black belts, just like there's such a huge spread of guys in real estate. Someone could be a millionaire worth one to five million, and then there's guys 250 million and a billion in real estate, and there's this huge gap between kind of black belts. And I always just wanted to go to the highest level and compete with the best. I don't have 
The thing about it is I think you have to sacrifice certain things in life to achieve. So I had to give up the idea of ever being elite in jujitsu. I'm like just trying to get the black belt. Yeah. And, but being elite of a black belt, that takes a certain amount of level and sacrifice that I'm just not there and I'm not willing to pay it because it would have to come at a cost of sacrificing business. And the guys I train midday, a lot of respect to them. But when I'm done training, I train midday on Saturday. I'm just dead for the rest of the day. Like training at night, you fall asleep afterwards. But if I train in the morning, it just completely drains me of all the energy. And I look at it like, it's like, you remember Street Fighter 2? There's like a life force that you kind of have. It's one of those. Yeah. If 80% of it gets drained right in the beginning, you don't have that energy to give for business. And business is number one. I always kept it. Business always came first. Like I wouldn't miss a business meeting for jujitsu. But anytime I didn't have it, I would try to always stick to my schedule of training. When I was younger, three, four times a week. Now, two, three days a week is what I try to get in. I love it. All right. Let's kind of, let's start in LA. I know you, your real estate career started in Jersey, mm -hmm. but let's kind of just talk to getting to LA and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what you got done in Jersey, but I think the extent, the meat of your career started in LA. Yeah. Why'd you go to LA? So my career started in 2004 when I kind of flipped my first house. I found an investor. I was dealing with pre-foreclosures, sending out letters and postcards. I found a lot in Coral Gables, Miami. I got a guy to put up, turned out to be a double lot, which I didn't even know what it was, but it was at the border of Coral Gables. So I did the wrong comps. I took <laughs> comps from literally right outside of Coral Gables. I showed him, I was like, hey, this is what I think it's worth. Fixed up about 400,000. It was completely beat up. He sold to us for 300,000. We sold it for 530. The guy put up the money and three months later, he wired that I think it was like 96, $97,000 to my bank account. And I was like, I was hooked at that point. I broke down. That was my first deal. And I cried because I literally thought I was like, oh my God, I have this figured out. I had no mentor. I had nothing. I just had books, sales books, real estate books. And it just became a reality. I broke down and cried. I was like, if I do this 10 more times, I'm a millionaire. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> so I, I just literally, it was just like, I haven't broken down and cried like that. That was like one of those peak emotional yeah. states where I was just thankful to God that I got to this place in my life. I was able to kind of achieve this with no mentor. And then I just decided after that, I did a couple of more deals in Miami. I made six figures that year gross. And then I just decided, okay, on average, the houses at that point were way higher in New Jersey. So I moved back to New Jersey and kind of turned up the marketing. And I did a lot of those bandit signs yeah. that we did everywhere. And I had every four-way intersection plotted out. And I would make sure at least 20 hours a week, bandit signs would go out. And then I would just field phone calls. And I did about 50 deals, probably half and half were flips and half were wholesale deals. Oh. And... At that point, the whole, the deals that I bought, I was the ninja guy. I was uh, I was the no income, no jobs, no assets, and they were just giving me loans. And I'd buy like four houses at a time and able to borrow more to fix them up. And then in 2008, I got caught with a bunch of houses and I went from living in a fancy apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey, overlooking the Manhattan skyline, driving S-Class Mercedes to literally the world changing overnight. And I kept moving from each one of my rentals on the futon to just kind of pay the rent. I was able to get rid of it. And I lived in an attic of one of my rentals. I guess now they call it house hacking. For me, it was just like, I just rented out 
all the rooms and fix the attic for myself, just sitting there, just wondering what happened to me. I was like, what happened? And no one would buy houses because they were kind of, it's kind of, they were, everything was going down at that point. So I just didn't know what to do. So a lot of people that I know left real estate and the ones that stayed in, they became successful. The people that left, they're just in some type of sales job. And then I just doubled down. I was like, I, I just got punched in the face by life. It was literally just oh, so like, I thought I was just on top of the world. I was beating all my friends. And it was just like, just a huge first knockout. And I was like, all right, well, what am I doing? So I, at that point when I was driving around, I saw this 300 unit building being built. And I just did the math. I was like, all right, if I'm making like 30,000 per house flip, I was like, this guy's probably making 30,000 per condo. I just did that quick math. I was like, how do I do that? How do I become a real estate developer? And I didn't know any real estate developers. So I started looking it up and NYU had a program for real estate development. I thought it was gonna be like plumbing school. Like you're gonna go like get your masters and they're gonna teach you real estate development. So I took out more loans and, <laughs> and I went to NYU and I lived in New York for, uh, I lived in New York for a little bit and New York is not fun when you don't have any money. It was literally at a point where I was just broke eating Subway sandwiches, just exercising, drinking a lot of Red Bulls and just trying to get through this. It was a nice experience of living there, but I'll tell you, New York is not fun with no money. There's just nothing to do when you're broke. And it's <laughs> the disparity that you see. I was like, I can't even afford a condo here. Like you look at these big buildings, it's so overwhelming. I was like, how do I ever do development here? So my thought process was that I'm gonna be like, at that point I came out probably $400,000 of debt between some of the real estate debt, school debt. And I was like, all right, if I'm gonna be broke, I'm gonna go get a job somewhere. and I'm gonna flip houses on the side. So to me, it was either Miami and Miami has this culture of people don't go, don't really start going out till 1 a.m. You have dinners at like 11, oh, you go out till God. one and then you're out till six. And <laughs> trying to shift the day over, I was like, I can't do that anymore. I had one friend in Los Angeles who's been trying to get me to move out for a long time. So I moved to Los Angeles and he was an actor and then he booked a TV show for like seven years and he moved to Atlanta. And then I literally didn't know anyone except for him, I had to make all new friends. And I was looking for a job and probably the best thing that ever happened to me was not being able to get one because you'd reach out to people. They're like, hey, we just laid off people with 10, 15 years of experience. It's nice you have a fancy master's degree in real estate, but you have no, <laughs> you have this entrepreneurial experience. You don't have, you know, actual real world experience to get into it. Some guys like, I might be able to pay you 30,000. And like, I think like my monthly nut was like 5,000 at that point. I was like, I can't do this. So then I was like, what skill set do I have? I got my broker license. I'm like, I'm just going to start flipping houses and look for partners. And I talked to a lot of people and then it just happened across my business partner. We got introduced to randomly on the beach. We were playing volleyball. One of my buddies like, Hey, you're both young. You're both in real estate. You should talk. And then, um, he had access to some capital from his father. We did a deal and then we did about 50 houses together. And from everything from flipping homes in Compton, Inglewood, basically all the places I used to hear about in rap songs, yeah. they were like affordable that we could kind of hit with like small price points, two, $300,000 purchases. And we started there, we moved up to building two and a half million dollar uh, custom homes. And at that point we did three custom homes, it was about 6 million worth of custom homes and lost 500,000 in the profit, in, in the process. But at the same time, we bought three lots 
And on those three lots, we, I think we made over $8 million building apartments. So then we dropped the custom homes and then started moving to apartments. And since then we've built close to 30 buildings, about 250 million of apartments in LA. And we had to learn construction. We kept getting screwed over by contractors. So at one point I decided, I was like, all right, this is our weak point. So I'm 30 years old. I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. We have to solve this. I was like, how complicated construction be? And I'm like an expert text, uh, test taker. So I went in and just took the test with all my experience from flipping houses. They gave me a GC license and I just started building. And the whole time I'm like building the first building, I was like, I can't believe they're letting me do this. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like they're really letting, I was like, I'm getting away with it. I was like, and like you confidently say to the bank, they're like, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. I have the greatest subs. You stay confident. The whole time inside, I'm like, I, I, I really can't believe they're letting me build this building. Oh, I was like, God. I know nothing about construction. So we didn't even know to pull in the residential. You don't have to have plumbing plans approved. In commercial, you have to have plumbing plans approved. So we started this building, we funded the loan, we started doing the foundation. And my plumber's like, where are your approved plumbing plans? I was like, approved plumbing plans? And then we had to go get the plumbing plans approved and we kind of figured it out. And that building, I think we built, we're all in probably, I think two and a half, maybe, I think 2.6 right now, it's worth six and a half. We still own it. I mean, that building basically pays for the rent not the rent, my mortgage for my house. So in the first two buildings, that really changed my life, which is why I talk about commercial real estate could change your life. That building for the first time kind of gave me a base salary of close yeah. to 10,000 a month. And I wasn't able to just like live from deal to deal. And it was, there was so much stress and anxiety, which I, I give so much respect to brokers, everyone that lives kind of deal per deal. Once that went away, I feel like we were able to kind of, I was able to kind of, not worry about survival and kind of going thriving. And then we just double down and, you know, no one, we, we wanted to do bigger buildings, but we didn't know about this whole co GP world or anything. We basically were like, how are we going to qualify? We barely got our first loan. My business partner called like 40 banks and one kind of bet on us. We met with the CEO of the bank. Paul's dad owned the bank. So Paul's dad like kind of went with us in a meeting and convinced this guy to kind of take a bet on us. He's like, bet on the younger next generation. And, you know, Paul's family's helped out a lot. They literally had, took out a second mortgage to just guarantee our construction loan. So it was basically almost kind of self-funded a little bit. So they didn't give us that much. And after that, it kind of got easy getting loans because now we had the net worth requirement to borrow those, but we shared the same liquidity and the same net worth across all the buildings. Some in chief investment officers would see that we were doing that, but a lot of them just wanted to get money out the door. And we would call a lot of banks and we just did a lot of small two to $4 million loans at the same time, sharing the same liquidity. And we went and just kind of just did that. So we personally guaranteed over a hundred million of construction loans. We just went for it. Like me and my business partner are just aggressive. People are like, don't ever personally guarantee construction loans. Like, oh, I don't know how you're supposed to do that. So yeah. we just personally guaranteed it, just went for it. And it's not for the faint of heart. You have to have relationships with people. Things went over budget. We personally guaranteed that money from other people that we used to borrow money to flip houses for. We'd lend it to the projects till the projects were finished up and we finished them. All of them have been successful. 
We've never lost money on any of our investments. We'll talk about some of the later ones during COVID that weren't as successful, but it wasn't our part. It was just the timing of it all. And they still made money, but it wasn't the IRRs that we're hitting before when you have 30% cost increases yep. and everything else. We'll get into that later. So you you went from being a ninja. I never heard that before. No, what is it? No, no income, no jobs or assets. Ninja loans. <laughs> I love it. You moved. I was out. the definition of subprime. I was the definition of subprime. I was <laughs> I was taking zero money down loans when I was eighteen to buy rental houses. And in in hindsight, for me, it was like I was just like I can't believe everybody doesn't do this. Take I a, didn't realize. Take a zen. Yeah, take us in. We're t- we're t- we're taking a zen break. I didn't realize. At the time that there, that's how the world worked. I was 18. Somebody was like, you can go to Countrywide and get this loan. Yeah. This is what you tell them. And I was, as soon as it all, the math kind of clicked, I, I remember the first thought I had was like, man, everybody should be doing this. Yeah. They, they, they told you like the brokers, like, just tell them what you're projected to make this year. That's it. The CPA, just tell them, you just get a letter from CPA, what you're projected to make. And they would give you a loan. And the irony was they were like, well, how are you going to make the money? I was like, I'm going to buy this house and flip it. Yeah. I, I got it. You got to give me this loan so I can get the money to, to prove what I'm going to do. Exactly. Um, you mentioned that you lost half a million bucks building some custom homes. I had a similar experience, not necessarily losing that much money, but the custom home business being just brutal and then having developments going on at TCU for student rentals. It was like, okay, this is a much better life. Yeah. Was there anything you took away from building? Like, how did you end up losing money on building homes? So a lot of it is I was a GC on them too. So it was kind of just jumping out of a plane and trying to assemble the parachute on the way down. So we didn't have the subcontractors. We didn't have anything. We didn't know the order to do anything. And and then I hired this broker and I was like, give me, I was like, can you refer me to designer? And the designer was great, her design, but she put you know, glass atrium in the middle of our building and the glass, half the building was glass. And that was a lot of money. That was an extra probably $200,000 that just didn't need to be there in glass on one house. So we bought it like one custom home, we bought for 800,000. I projected a two, six million exit price, but between how long it took us to build it, how long it was on the market for six months, it was just our investors, the interest made money and we didn't make any money. And then another, the other two houses were smaller. And what you realize is when you're GC people like, what do you build per square foot? Someone kind of told you what you build and we had a 1500 square foot house and then we had a 1700 square foot house and then a 4,000 square foot house. And we use the same price per square foot at measurement, but there's still a $30,000 kitchen appliance set in there. There's still the same footprint of the roof on the 1700 square foot and the foundation. So the smaller the house, the more expensive price per foot it kind of gets. And that that's where the estimates were off. But I learned a lot about construction. I learned a lot about estimating and I knew I was going to get it back. And I just built my house and I created a million of equity, taking all those lessons. Like I was going to come back to homes and conquer that 500,000 back. And I just finished my house and it was same thing. I posted how I sourced it. I got a VA in Tijuana. He cold called like 3000 houses that were beat up in the neighborhoods I wanted to be in, bought it for one, two, put about a million bucks into it. It's worth about three to a thousand a foot. And then I created that equity and I thought I was going to be able to refinance 100% out of it. And then the rates kind of shut up, shut up and I didn't get a chance to refi out of it. So there's still some money stuck in there, but at least I created that money. I knew I was going to come back to custom homes and make that money back. It just took a decade <laughs> to get back there and apply those lessons. And there's literally standard size windows 
everything's out of wood, imported hardwood floors from China. And yeah, I took all those lessons and I applied them, but it took, you, it took you a decade. You got it back. I got it back. Okay. And, you, and real quick, you hired a VA and basically just told that VA, here are the neighborhoods, here's some, I don't know, software where you can get names and numbers. And I just want you to contact Just everyone. contact them and be like, hey, would you consider selling your house for the right price? Yeah. And my fiance, she's a real estate agent that works for me. And she, when she got pregnant, she gained a lot of weight. So she was walking two, three hours a day with a stroller in the neighborhoods. And I taught her to write down all the houses, like what a little crapper beater looks like. And I told her to write them all down and plot them all out. So literally like people like driving for dollars, she walked all the neighborhoods and she plotted them out. And she followed up with this guy for six months, every two weeks. Do you mind if I follow up with you? Do you mind if I follow up with you in two weeks? And then for tax reasons, he was ready to sell a year end. And we didn't talk about the price. I probably paid him a hundred more, which I, what I wanted to buy it for, but it turned out great at that point. It's still, I bought it for a lot, the lot for one, two. I thought it was worth about one, one at that point, but then COVID happened and everything shot up and we bought it right in the beginning of COVID and trying to do construction during COVID dealing with the city where city employees don't work from COVID. It was just really hard. Okay, we're going to go back to construction in the company, yeah. but you just opened up a window to talk about this one story that you have to kind of tell. You've told it on Twitter, but you just got to say it verbally. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> you talked that you just bought a house from somebody. Uh-huh. And in 2005 and 2006 in New Jersey, I, I'm, I'm reading verbatim, the actual owner of the house we were about to purchase was tied up in a carpet dead in the basement and his tenant killer was pretending to be him and selling us the house. So we're going to take a sidebar real quick and you have to tell this story because only in real estate could things like this happen. Oh, so we thought we got this smoking deal. I forgot the name of the city. And it was just, it was just a no brainer. It's like there's so much money to be ready to be made. I had all the money lined up. And we were going and I had a partner on the deal, my friend at the time, and he, we were ready to go to closing the day of closing. He's like, I'm going to go pick that guy up. And then he went to pick him up and the guy just started acting all weird. And my buddy's like, I think he's like crazy or he like killed the owner or something. I was like, bro, he didn't kill the owner. I was like, there's, there's like no way he's pretending to be someone else. So my buddy just called the cops and it ended up that these two guys, they had a drunk fight. And I guess one of the guys rolled up the guy in the carpet oh in the God. basement. So when my business, my business partner at the time was touring the house, he was touring the basement with the actual owner, tore, like the fake in, in, owner, the, 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 the fake, no, the real owner the real was owner. in the carpet oh, rolled up in the basement. The fake owner was selling the house, pretending to be this guy. Right. And that would have been a huge title issue if we would have closed it. And thank God it never closed because I don't know how long it would have taken to work through that title issue. But it was literally, I posted the article from it. The guy got arrested. I think he's out of jail now for all that. And it was just a pretty wild kind of story. And I didn't even think about it. And to me, I'm like, oh, just... You know, you just go and you just do business. Some things like that happen yeah. and <laughs> you, you just keep it moving. <laughs> All right. Now we're back to LA. We had to take a quick pit stop there. Describe like how the company looks today. What, how, how would you describe the firm today? 
So it doesn't look like anything what I want it to look like. What I want it to look like is your company, which is a company that actually builds real estate. But right now, me and my business partner do a lot of the heavy lifting. We still have a team, but in construction, the way the way we look for it is two most important things is looking for deals and looking for capital. Both okay. me and my business partner do that. We both look for deals and look for capital. Now, we kind of split up our roles. He's from Mexico City, so when we were flipping houses, he was dealing with construction because he spoke Spanish. When I took that real estate exam, I kind of put me into the place of doing construction. So I, I run construction, I estimate the projects. I have a, had a project manager, just let him go once we have a, a lot less projects right now. I had eight superintendents at the time, a project manager, and then I have my assistant who kind of does the bidding. I look over the numbers, kind of estimate them, and then we just build them. He handles the pre-development, getting the permits with his assistant, and then he handles all the property management. And we've done it basically from our first building, which like you, in hindsight, might've been a mistake, but now we've grown into it. We have VAs, four VAs in the Philippines that help out with property management during COVID. We broke out all the activities that could be done virtually and we moved them over to the Philippines. We have a couple of leasing people in the office. And then we have two, we have three, now we are down to two acquisition guys that literally their job is to cold call property owners, but now institutional sites and look for deals basically the same way we did houses. We're applying the same exact model. I figure I can't beat the local LA, uh, I can't beat the Texas developers with all their relationships, but I could beat the local brokers because I could approach the brokers, not the brokers, the property owners and say, hey, you could sell it to this broker, but why would you wanna pay a commission? We would buy this and you don't have to pay a commission. What I do is I tell the guys, I was like, hey, you'll keep 100% of the commission on that deal. And we give them 10% of the promote what we make on the deal. And that's basically how we're set up and how we're gonna keep growing is sourcing deals directly. In LA now, everyone knows us, so deals kind of come to us. We don't have to, I've done direct mail, gotten deals through direct mail. We've done cold calling in LA. There's so many deals that brokers kind of bring us that aren't even listed on the market, that they're like, hey, I can't get this listing. They know we'll take care of them. We're both licensed brokers. We would never do anything to jeopardize their commission. So we have deals kind of brought to us in LA. If we need to turn up the marketing in LA, we could turn it up, but here we do that. So that's how we're set up. There's property management division, which my business partner runs. There's a construction and development and fundraising. We're both in charge. All right. Construction's like kind of, I'm not saying your thing. It's constr- a lot of people do construction, but you're you're vertically integrated and you self-perform. Yeah, we self-perform. And so I think it, it would be prudent to have, just have a conversation on why do y'all self-perform instead of outsourcing? We'll just start there. So we, when we were trying to outsource flipping houses, it felt like these guys are just basically, they'd be good for a little bit and then they go bad. Or they're like, you got three, four projects with going them and they're Ponzi scheming and they finish two of them and then walk on the third one. So it was always a problem. And then when we went and approached GCs, the number that we gave us, we spoke to one developer, like he built for 160 a foot, I didn't know per gross, per net, he's just like 160 a foot. And then we got quoted 250 per foot from some other guy. And this guy built in a year and this guy's like, it's gonna take a year and a half at least. So we just kind of self-performed just because we thought it was gonna be the best way to go. It wasn't like, we didn't know about the GC fees. I didn't know about GC overhead. We would literally like you start off, we told people, we don't make any money till you make money. It's gonna be 50-50, we'll take 50% of the upside 
and a big chunk of our deals was like that. It's nice. We created a bunch of equity, but we weren't able to actually build a business, hire people, scale or anything because we didn't know about any of that. Yep. So we started off kind of, I was like, how do people pay overhead? And then I learned about general constrict, uh, general conditions on construction. I was like, oh, you're supposed to charge overhead to pay the office and general conditions for institutional guys. A lot of it comes out to about seven to 8% of hard costs. So then there's profit, which is five to 6%, depending bigger deals, institutional guys here in Texas charge about 5% and they have maybe their 150,000 a month general conditions that they go in. And we kind of learned about that. And I figured, I was like, there's gotta be coaches out here somewhere. So I took out on construction coach. Yeah, on, he's on Twitter, yeah, right? He's on Twitter. I told him to go on Twitter and Quran. And the problem is, He's really good at helping people build construction companies, but construction has really short timelines. Ours are like three to five years. So ours is like trying to turn the Titanic. So anything I wanted to institute, I couldn't really do it. So he's more of actual like business coach that I was able to bounce ideas off of while I was kind of pivoting during COVID to Texas and everything else. He's helped out with a lot, but what he really helped out is he's like, hey, if you're if you really want to compress these timelines, you, while every sub is busy because you're relying on other people, you got to bring certain trades kind of in-house and have people that do that. So I'm not going to manage the labor. So right now my father-in-law works with us. So we're, we've basically, my father-in-law let now it's basically market rate labor for there. He doesn't know how much it's going to cost him, but I was like, if other guys are making money at this, you'll make money. And he's a licensed GC now, and he's fr framed a 28 unit building, framing a 30 unit building. And it works really well because we have unlimited labor access pool where we could throw bodies at it and do it faster. So I'm hoping to compress the timelines. And he's not just doing that. He's going to be doing drywall, finished carpentry, trim, everything where you're just struggling to get people on site at the end. Now it's not going to be an issue because it's kind of an in-house but I don't deal with it. It's just basically, I pay him what I used to pay other people and I have historical costs on all the numbers. I want it to be fair to our investors, basically a market value for that. But I think now if I need, I'm like, hey, throw five, 10 more people on it. Let's speed this up. That's what's gonna happen. And we just, I think in the last year kind of are getting to that. It, do you, I'm sure you get asked by a lot of folks that are maybe just getting started or maybe even not. It seems to me like some people fall into construction because either they're they're the third party contractors are bidding too high and they're just going to do it cheaper or it's almost like they just feel like it's part of the business. If most people ask you like, hey, I wanted to start developing apartments, do you tell them, hey, you should do the construction on your own? Like, how do you answer that question? So it depends if you're a guy coming from the institutional world mm -hmm. and you get a co-GP and you start doing institutional deals. Yeah. The talent construction is all at the top. Yeah. You don't need to be a GC at the institutional level. And in Texas, I'm not planning on being a GC. You just use an institutional GC. They could provide so much information. Like you don't need to do it. In the middle market space, it's it's just a mess. Yeah. I mean, the GMPs don't mean anything. I just spoke to a developer who literally got a GMP with a guy. His costs went up 30. He's change ordering them. There's liens. It's just a huge problem. And GMPs don't mean anything with middle level, like low level subs, this middle market space. So we do everything kind of cost plus. So if you have, and LA is a really competitive market where if you literally use the GC, the GC and your investors would make all the money, there wouldn't be anything left. They, they pad the numbers and add so much on there that 
I think in LA, all most of the local developers that I know, the big guys, they all self-perform construction, the biggest local developers, or they basically own the construction company and might, you know, those guys get paid some money, whatever, but you're either owning the GC, the biggest local guys, or you are the GC. Why would I not compete with you in LA? Like, what do you know that I don't know? Oh, you could compete. I mean, there's so much room for everyone. It's just, I mean, we're shortage of housing. That's why I'm so open to it. I but don't on construction specifically, like you've got 12 years in that market. And to be fair, not calling out LA, there's lots of cities, super challenging city just in general to build. I mean, you've seen kind of Texas and maybe you'd say, hey, it's just as hard to build in Texas. As so it so is I'll tell you this, sub-institutional is not that hard. It's, it's, okay. Yeah, it's actually a buy right project. If you're under 50 base units before bonus density, yeah. you're not subject to any environmental lawsuits. The environmental lawsuits is where you don't know how long it's gonna take you to get a project entitled. I have a developer buddy, he bought a site in 2006 and he still doesn't have permits. He's hoping to break ground this year. There's a 300 unit site that first started getting entitled in 2004. They're doing the foundation now. So it's a basically, it could be a 10, 20 year process to get a deal permit ready to go to do a two, 300 unit project. And I just don't have the time. I'm like, maybe later on in my career, I will be do a black that. belt by then. Seriously. You'll be a two black. <laughs> what are they doing for 15 years? Just sitting? I mean, they're, just they're obviously not lawsuits. working on it every day, are they? Fight, fighting lawsuits. Every community group just fights it using CEQA, which is California Environmental Quality Act. And they yeah. sue, they sue. You're just fighting lawsuits. and. The challenging part is the land is being sold at a price that literally that's not priced in. And then when there are entitled deals, I know what they're paying for them. And a lot of those developers are just basically doing them for the fees. They're not probably, a lot of them aren't hitting the promotes. There's some that do. My buddy works at a big firm. They've made money kind of guys that entitle land. But if you get land at like 30,000 per buildable unit and sell it a hundred, but I've seen when we were paying 60, 80,000, we're getting the same rents as they are. And they're selling land at 150,000 per unit. I was like, there's no money to be made. So there's money to be made actually just entitling deals. Yeah. That's a whole other deal. And if you have patient capital, family offices that you can do that. But the issue is in the last couple of years, they passed the thing called measure JJJ where if you do a zone change or a variance, now you have to use union labor to build those projects. And if you use union labor, it you literally would have to give me the land for free for the numbers to pencil. So that kind of took a lot of deals out of there. And I just don't think right now where we are, we, we wanna focus on doing sub-institutional deals. Our goal is to do $100 million of like $30 million deals, maybe three, four deals per year, smaller ones in LA build and keep and in a decade we hope to have a billion dollar portfolio of new construction apartments in la and then do you know one deal in austin one deal in dallas and maybe one deal in san antonio two three hundred unit project per year and get that going in texas and then next market we're after that i'm looking at florida i'd like to make it back Keep to fort, back. Well, fort lauderdale house on the water that's kind of when i was running and dreaming about my dream life it always had house on the water in Florida with a boat out front. I love it. Yeah, I was in New York the other day and I was walking by and you don't see this as much in Texas or I've never seen it, but there was all these people. Uh, they had a, a inflatable rat that was like 30 feet tall in front of this building with a bunch of union workers picketing. And, I, and we we're walking by and I was with uh, with strip mall guy. Okay. 
And I was like, what's the rat? And they're like, oh, they, they inflate this thing and they do it all over the city and they put it in front of projects that didn't hire union workers. Yeah. And they're out there passing out flyers and they're mad and they're angry. And I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, even if cost wasn't the issue, I couldn't imagine getting these people on the, the, the entitlement and like the rage was like, oh my gosh, not only do you have to pay them more, they seem very upset. Like I couldn't imagine having them on a job. Well, I don't even think they, they call the shots. And they do, but I don't even think they're the union workers. They're just guys hired to picket for the union mm. workers. That's fair. So. Uh, I had never seen anything like it. Okay, on construction, real quick, and then I want to talk about like what a perfect LA deal, how that comes together for you in a little bit. But how do you measure success in construction? There's there's obviously on time and on budget, which never happens. Which never happens. Even the best people can't do it. Yeah. And there was somebody that came in and said, how many change orders? Somebody asked, how many change orders do you get per project? Like, I don't think that's how to measure it. Like, from your view, how do you know you're getting better at construction or getting worse at it? So our first project we finished in 13 months. Okay. Second project we finished in 16 months. Now, me and my business partner were looking. The average project, everyone underwrites 22 to 24 months. And we literally looked at our size projects from the time they get permits to the time they get CFO, it's becoming 32, like 31, 32 months. And a lot of it has to do with inspectors. When back then you fail inspection, you call the inspector next day, he redoes it. Now there could be a week, they could roll over inspection. So setting the timelines, everyone's like, you really got to hold your subs accountable. The battle is just to get them to show up Right. And the battle, and if they do show up, they play these games. If they should have six, eight people there, they'll send you one or two guys. They'll send one or two guys to another project. And they're just kind of ignore your phone calls and, you know, they balance you. And the problem is getting the labor there. So your question is, how do you know you're getting better at construction? It's just a never ending, almost like battle with trying to get subs to show up on time. And then that's the battle. It's just taking it to the finish line and then you're battling the utility company to kind of give you power at the end because you could have buildings that are completed and then wait six months to get energized. And it's just the constant like DWP, Depart Department of Water Power, just they're just kind of a little bit of a nightmare to deal with. And it's a huge challenge. The challenge is just getting to the end. And it feels like if you look by timelines, we've gotten worse after 30 projects. But then I look at a guy who's been building, there's like one of the top local developers, probably done a couple thousand units. He used to finish these projects in like 12, 14 months. He's also taken 28 yeah. months. And I'm like, I look at him, my business partner's like, you know, you should have Monday morning meetings and do this. I was like, do you think he got worse at construction? I was like, he's taking twice as long. And I'm like, he's got all the scale, power, everything else, relationships with the subs. And even though we use a lot of the same subs, I was like, if he's taking twice as long, we're going to take twice as long. And a lot of that is just kind of bringing trades in house, I think, and getting labor to the job, but just getting bodies there, but you can't do it because the subs are stretched out. This is a time where they're making money. They're taking on too many jobs and you don't know their game and they'll play this game. They'll show up. They're like, this isn't ready. And then they'll leave. And it's literally something I could have with a worker fix. And then they don't show up again a, a little bit. So like a week later. So it's just a constant never ending headache and battle. And that's why I asked. I mean, it seems like the goalpost is moving and it's the same everywhere. Every contractor or developer I talk to is, and I used to, to do it too, 
progressively it got like 10% longer each year because yeah. subs are busier, entitlements are taking longer. Yep. And again, it's kind of like what you see at a lot of big bull markets. Everybody's fat now. Yeah. And, you know, 09, 08 subs were. Oh, when we were doing the They'd found- show up, they'd just see that there was a sign in the yard and they'd be calling you, hey, you need foundation work. Our concrete guy had like 40 people there doing the concrete foundation, something that takes us four or five months now. He did it in like a month and a half. Yep. And because he wanted, at that point, he wasn't busy. He wanted to get paid as fast as possible. So he just had unlimited labor. And what I track is the uh, Fred has uh, construction unemployment numbers. And at that point, it was like 12, 14%, maybe like 20% construction on un unemployment. At that point, when they're slacking it, right now, I think it's about 3.4. When there's construction labor slack, you could get jobs done faster. Right yeah. now, it's just at, we're at a historical low and there's just, everyone's busy. So you just kind of have to adjust your expectations and everything kind of was working out in LA pre-COVID because everything was taking longer, costing more, but the rents were also going up and offsetting it. So you'd make the same amount of money. You just kind of move up like higher in the capital stack. Yeah. But now the rents kind of started dropping off and during COVID the construction costs jumped up and now they're not making as much sense. So we did a lot of one bedrooms and we were all in at 350 to 370 per unit, all in everything. And they were worth about 500,000. Yep. Now the same project, you could be all in at 470 and it's worth 500,000. So we, what we figured out is that one bedrooms cost almost as much as two bedrooms to build. Yeah. And two bedrooms, you get about a thousand more of rent. So you could still build two bedrooms and be all in it, like a little over 500 and then, then be worth 650 to 750 depends where the rents are. So the bigger kind of projects kind of work. And now they took away the parking requirements. So if you do smaller kind of studio type of apartments, slab on grade, which is kind of what they have here, no parking. I think those deals still pencil, but not a lot of people want to take a risk of building apartments with no parking. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the follow-up question would just be if the metric in this environment right now is, can you get subs to show up on time and do the job? The question would just be like, how do you get people to show up? Like, is there a magic bullet? It, and you can't say, well, we'll just pay them more because then projects don't work. Yep. Obviously you guys have a track record. You've had these subs for a long time. You have relationships, but like, is there a silver bullet for getting folks to show up or is it just a dog fight every day? It's a dog fight every day. I think if you just perform some trades and you kind of have it, you're more in control of guys that could actually source the labor. That's the only thing that I've been able to kind of come up with. And we're just, we're testing it out right now, but no, you can't do it. And when you go bid out a project, you have your kind of low cost guy and the guy that's basically just crushing it in concrete is one of my good friends and everything else, but he's also doing 300 unit projects right now. And you're not like, he grew up with us in the business, but he grew up to doing the biggest projects and now we're still not the priority when you're doing a concrete job that's, you know, whatever for a 300 unit building versus a 30 unit building. So you're still fighting that battle and there really is no magic bullet. And when you go choose a sub, all you know is that there's some guy that's coming in a little bit higher. You don't know if he's going to do it faster. You just know he's more expensive to start and you don't have a relationship with him and you don't know how many change orders are going to come from that guy. All right. One more question on construction, and you've been pretty vocal about this on Twitter. You've gotten really good at ordering from China. So one way to like fight the good fight is figure out a way to get materials better. 
So I did that for my house and guest house. I haven't done that for apartment buildings. Okay. And the reason for that is you could order the materials, but now you're, let's say I ordered windows from China. Now I'm taking on all the liability for all the windows. And I'm basically, if I deliver them a cost, I take on all the risk. I don't get paid for it. Our investors probably get 80% of the savings. We take on 100% of the liability, so I don't do it. So I've only done it for my personal house. And you can import, like I ordered great hardwood floors that would be $7 a foot. They came in 250 per foot delivered. And they look amazing in my house. And I did the furniture and I'm doing the backyard furniture. And I did bifolding doors that each door came in at 15,000 kind of bid out. I did two bifolding doors and they were 15,000 a piece and they cost me 2,500 a piece delivered. So, you know, I saved 25,000 doing there. I would do that for my personal house, but unless you have a separate company that kind of is making money from that and we don't have that disclosed to our investors. So I've never done that for our apartment buildings. And it just, if you're going in and it has to go down to that level, it's just not worth it. And I'm like, the material is such a small part of it the finishes that there's not really going to be a savings that you could do it. You could do it to maybe control the supply chain and other things, but it's not really, uh, it's not really going to move the needle. Fair enough. But then one quick question, could any average Joe just call up China if they're even wanting to do their house or did you have some connection uh to do it? How'd you do it? I went on Alibaba and you literally Alibaba is like the Amazon for manufacturers yep. and you go in and I just look at the companies that have been around for seven to 10 years. They show how much volume they do and where they mostly sell to. And then you're just talking to people through WhatsApp. And it was just a gamble. It was a risk. I took one of the verified people and I was like, all right, I'll just risk $5,000. Like what's the worst that could happen? I lose 5,000 to potentially save 25 yep. and it worked out great. And I posted those sources. Like these are the people that I used worked out great. I posted on my blog and I posted the hardwood floors. They turned out great, but it's a risk. You don't know. But if someone's ordering a lot, like top guys, I know people actually get on the plane, go to China, check out the factory. Like one of the, someone called me up from Twitter. They said they actually, they import stuff from China. So they're, they're Chinese people check out the factory and they're like, oh, this hardwood place is legit. And they're like, they're really good. So they're, they're ordering kind of stuff for their personal house. But there's no magic bullet. I think if you're going to do this for a while and you kind of want to do that, you just take a trip for China, you develop those relationships and uh, you could bring it in. It's not that complicated. There's a lot of people in the import export business that they're not geniuses. Okay. All right. Let's just take LA where you've done the majority of your work and you've built some great projects and some very profitable ones and your website's awesome. And I've looked at a bunch of them. Maybe start with like, and I and and I don't know if we'll get there. I I did want to talk about Compton and some of those things, but I, I do want to talk about um, the multi stuff. So let's just kind of walk through like how a project comes to be, and really how you think about all these neighborhoods. LA is a freaking its own world in and of itself. So how how do you find deals? Like, what does a great deal look like for you? So what a de- great deal looks like for us, and it's changed because the laws have changed in the last 10 years. Yeah. So we used to be able to buy a triplex, knock it down and build a 13 unit building, oh, provide oh, a triplex, a triplex, yeah, yeah. and then knock down a triplex, build a 13 unit building and have one affordable unit. Now the city changed. If you're knocking down a triplex, you got to bring three units as affordable. So a lot of those deals don't work. 
Now they did the same thing for basically duplexes. And if you want to build a 10 unit and it's 20% affordable, the numbers don't work. So the ideal deal, I think they're pushing everything to commercial sites to develop or where there's single family homes left over, which there aren't a lot. So we don't do any zone changes. We don't do any variances. And we use one of kind of bonus densities that they have their state bill 1818, which is a state bonus density bill. And then there's TOC, transit oriented communities. And they're two different types of bills, two different entitlements with transit or oriented communities. It's going to take you about a year and a half to two years to kind of get plans to build your project from start to our RTI ready to issue permits. And SB 18, we used to get it in seven to nine months, probably taking 12 months right now because you don't, with SB 1818, just state bonus density, you don't have to go in front of the planning department. TOC, you have to go in front of the planning department, it adds about six months to the timeline. And we use one of the two and it's literally just buy right. You find the site, you go to your architect and you're like, all right, the way I look at it, I was like, I kind of look at like apartments kind of like pizzas. Show me the massing study that you can do. What's, what, how can we do it? Then you break it up into slices, which are apartments, and you break it up. It's You figure out kind of how much each costs, how much you could rent each one for, and then you're always limited by parking, where we were historically. So first you design the parking in Los Angeles and see how many cars you could fit. That determines how many units you used to be able to do. That just went away in the last, since the beginning of this year. So then you're always designing, we used to design for parking, and that determines how many units, and it determines how you kind of take the massing and you slice it up into how many units. And a lot earlier, we left a lot of FAR on the table because it wouldn't make sense to build a 1200 square foot one bedroom because you're not gonna get that extra rent. And you can't build a two bedroom because now you might have to go two levels of subterranean parking and that becomes exponentially more expensive. And that's where knowing the costs of everything kind of comes in and you're plugging in the numbers as you're building it I'm kind of estimating the cost and I look at it, the price per unit of the wooden box has always stayed within, like when we were building within like 5,000 of each other. So, I mean, you're just adding electrical, which used to be 9,600 per unit. And now it's like 17,000 per unit. You're adding the plumbing, which used to be 11,000 per unit. Now it's 15, 16,000 for a one bedroom, 21, 22,000 for like a two bedroom. And you're just adding all the little pieces, drywall per unit, appliances, kitchen stuff per unit, framings, price per gross square foot, floorings per gross square foot, paintings per gross square foot. You kind of add all that up and then you figure what you're gonna, it's gonna cost and then you figure what rent you're going to be. And then you just design it and you go in and then you just change the facade a little bit. The rest of the inside was exactly the same for 10 years. We kind of just built the same, almost identical product over and over and that's how you do it. So the ideal deal is no zone change, no variance, and it just works. Okay, what what matters about the neighborhood? Does it have to be, do the sites have to be walkable to something? So there's certain neighborhoods at one point when we were doing this pre-COVID, we needed about 350 a foot rents, now it's more to make the numbers pencil. So we would basically do it in areas where you could get certain rents. So there's certain neighborhoods that penciled and certain ones that didn't, and you could be, two, three miles outside of where things pencil and they no longer pencil. So our area that we focus when brokers call up, they're like, what are you guys looking for? We're like west of downtown, north of the 10, south of 101. Those are the areas where we thought we could get our rents and make numbers work. There are people that built outside those areas. I never understood how they ever made the numbers work on those. And now being in the business, I know a lot of those guys don't make the numbers work and they don't make the numbers. They don't make profit. Or if they do, they might be a family office where they're okay being all in at like 
less than what the building might be worth. So they don't need to hit the same return thresholds that we do. And real quick, when you said affordable, what does affordable mean out there? So you said like prior to or 10 years ago, you could build 13 units and one had to be affordable and that'd be three. But what is the definition of affordable in LA? So there's there's very extremely low income, very low income, moderate. So everyone always goes the lowest. Very uh, With SB1818, you go very low income. And it was for a one bedroom that we would get 2,700. It's rent covenant. There's a deed restriction that that unit we could only rent out at certain AMI, which can, comes out to about 700 bucks a month. Okay. Okay. Then back to location. You had kind of given a geography, but if you get like really micro, did it matter if it was on a corner or next to jobs or next to a supermarket or it didn't matter? No, in LA? So we plotted out, we thought we were building our first building in Koreatown. And I thought there's going to be young professional Koreans that are going to be in there. And it was completely not. And everyone that we plotted out where they worked, they worked from Pasadena to Santa Monica. So there was, it was almost, there's, LA is just chronically supply constrained. If you're able to build a building, you will rent it out. You don't have to work as hard on unit designs and anything else. You're just creating boxes for people to live in. You make them nice, you put nice finishes and they rent out. The beauty, when you're doing a house, I would, like I said, I wouldn't do a house on a main street. I wouldn't do a house next to an apartment building where the whole apartment building's looking down in your backyard. But apartments you could put up anywhere main streets anywhere and usually there they are on main streets and uh you know there's some multifamily kind of res high density residential kind of orders kind of neighborhoods so anywhere where you could get it done it will rent and it will work if you deliver it at the right price and are you always trying to max out the amount of units or is that not the right strategy either? always maxing m maxing out the units but we weren't maxing out the far because we were limited by the parking so we could have done 1,200 square foot one bedrooms, but we limited to 750 to 900 square feet because building that extra square footage, a one bedroom is a one bedroom. It's not going to rent for significantly that much more. Yeah. And we've built, at one time we built 600 square foot one bedrooms and 900 square foot one bedrooms on our first three building. And when we were leasing them up, they both rented for the exact same price. It's just that the 900 ones rented faster and these rented a little bit slower, but this one's always filled up now. And once they're filled up, they're always filled up. What's FAR? Florida area ratio. Okay. So basically you just weren't building, you were building as many units, just not as much square footage. Yeah. I could have probably done another 10,000 square feet on each 11,000. I could have probably done another five, 6,000 square feet on each 11,000 square foot building. By right, it was three to one FAR. And we were building 11,000 square foot buildings. We probably could have done 15 or 16,000 square feet and we just weren't utilizing it all. All right, so you find a site, you've gone, done your massing study. Do y'all use the same architect every time? We've gone through a bunch of architects. The ones we started with that I took from another developer is not the ones we're kind of finishing off. I have an architect that I really like and she got pregnant and she went on maternity leave and we've gone through a few other ones. One is just a nightmare, one I haven't built with yet, so I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out. We'll see once we actually get to the site and look at the plans because they're designing a lot of them. They're still old school. They like higher end architects all design in Revit and 3D. These guys all design in AutoCAD. And a lot of times kind of the plans somehow don't match when you go on site and we'll see how many kind of issues there are. But we have our kind of go-to kind of architects and try to reuse the same consultants. All right. We've had the same engineer on all our projects. 
structural. But what's more important, the architect or the structural engineer? Or maybe that's not the right question. I I, I think both are important, but I think as long as you get standard size windows, standard size doors for your project and you don't get a very expensive facade, the structural is probably more important. Okay, and to be and to confirm, when does your structural start working with your architect? Are they working together at they're, the beginning of the plan? They're working in tandem. I think they just give at a certain point they just give the outlines of the units to the structural. He starts working on a structural, and then they start filling out kind of the units. So they're going in tandem. First, the architect starts, and then a month or two in, the structural starts, and you kind of have them finish in tandem. And real quick, what makes a good architect, and what makes a bad architect? A good architect kind of takes direction. And is what I consider a developer's architect. Yeah. They're not sitting there trying to have their vision come into life through your dollars. They're trying to sit there and make a cost-effective building that looks nice, but that's not a work of art. And bad architect wants to win awards. And I'm sorry, but I don't think you could win awards and also design cost-effectively. And when you're dealing with tight margins, if you're doing a condo project and there's a huge spread, you could have some money to spend on the facade. On our buildings, we basically just do the front facade, maybe 15 sides, and the rest was just a stucco box. And your look, you kind of have a look to your buildings. I mean, if you look at your stuff, they, they you t- could tell you built it. Yes, but I think through the years it's evolved. Yeah. And honestly, like the way I do it is I just look on Instagram of photos and I tell my architect, I was like, I want this one to look the facade like, this picture from Instagram and then they do it. Like, so I have a modern farmhouse now. Everyone was doing farmhouses. I have like a black building that we were doing. I was like on a black phase for a, l- a little bit. I have had one. So I just try to change it up on the facades and it's not that much money to change up the facade. All right, let's just kind of talk about just, you, you've referenced several times like COVID hit. Obviously we know that, but it seems to, I'm picking up that like things kind of changed once COVID hit. What has COVID done to the multifamily development market? And and the one thing I didn't hit on, and you might just be able to weave this right in, is I know that there was a lot of rent control that became, or a lot of moratoriums and things. I don't know if that impacted you, but maybe talk about your business like in a post-COVID world. So when COVID hit, it was, everyone was working from home. And I don't actually believe the city employees were working from home. I think they were just on vacation not answering emails. So you couldn't get everything used to come in. If you have kind of just a question, need something modified, you come in, you would get, they would stamp it and get it going. Everything just slow down. Development, they would quarantine plans for like five days between departments, stretched out the timelines. You couldn't get anyone to pick up the phone. You couldn't get anyone to answer. The subs would always call out and say, Every, all my, like the excuse was everyone always had COVID during COVID. So that was, <laughs> that was the excuse. So basically COVID became the go-to excuse for everything. All my guys have COVID. One guy got COVID. So no one could show up. The inspectors always had COVID. They couldn't show up. So everything just got prolonged, delayed, and just dealing with city employees working from home. I think work from home doesn't work. Yeah. And I'm not a big believer in it. I think it could work for certain professions certain people that are motivated, but there's a reason that we had middle management to manage people that can't manage themselves. And I think a lot of people in the government kind of fit that position. And I literally at one point had to email my planner, the city attorneys, the council people, and just be like, is this guy on vacation or is he working? And 
putting the pressure on him and the mayor's office all on the same email, then that got him to reply. But it was just weeks of sending emails, just no replies. So it was really challenging doing business during COVID. The timelines kind of extended. Then the, you know, the electrical panels and the switch gear couldn't come on time. So all those supply and chain issues, things that you could just order and just would arrive, didn't arrive. So we would have buildings that would be completed, but we couldn't get power and then couldn't get switch gear. And by the time we got switch gear, then you got to wait for DWP. So the timelines just really got extended. And there was, when you got basically fully completed buildings that you're paying interest on, and lately the interest went up, it's, it's pain. So like the latest deals, I can't say we've hit the same kind of IRRs nowhere near. And, and what were the factors that killed the IRR? Interest. Interest rate and construction just, just costs up. Const- not- construction costs went up probably 30% kind of during COVID. Yeah. And You're, it, it's, it's more construction cost and more interest on more construction costs. Interest, more construction costs, more interest on the construction costs. Your buildings are fully completed. Now you're paying interest on the fully, more interest on fully completed buildings. And then when you're dealing in sub-institutional space and even institutional space, I was speaking to, uh, framers on an institutional deal their framers just walked like no one would honor those contracts so even at that level you know we have a project where we bid out right now we're going through we bid out the windows they were a hundred thousand dollars for a project when they came in they're like one hundred eighty thousand dollars for the same exact windows so they went up 80 percent during um just the windows Melgard, and that happened and no one honors their contract like at that level because at the end of the day they're like sue me like i'm not gonna take that and in fairness to them they're not in the commodities trading business so they can't be expected to take that hit so the developers kind of took that hit and we were just borrowing money to finish more projects and finishing them up and then everything's costing more taking longer and it's challenging so as and, and real quick, are the when you build new construction, were the mo- moratoriums on no rent increases? Did that impact your buildings, or were those just for certain types of buildings? So it was just for existing what we were building. It didn't affect the ones that were under construction, but the ones we had going on, we couldn't evict tenants. I think it was like three years, and that's over. Uh, that's over. But you couldn't evict tenants. Tenants weren't paying. I had a developer buddy where literally his whole building just decided to strike and not pay rent, and you know, the land, he still has to pay his mortgage. He still has to do that. And this government was just telling people not to pay rent. You don't have to pay rent, but the mortgage company still wanted you to pay. We never got, it wasn't, our tenants had high credit ratings and they're higher end tenants. So we had some delinquencies, but it wasn't that much that we weren't able to like not service cash flow. So we didn't have any of those issues, but we did have a lot of rent that wasn't paid. And then my business partner, he announced property management. They had some programs where you're allowed to apply for the tenant and, you know, they would kind of reimburse you for some or part of the rent. And sometimes they'd send the money to the tenant and the tenant would cash that check and not give it to you. So the whole thing was just a mess. So what happened once they released it? Did a lot of tenants get evicted? Did they owe a backlog of rent that they hadn't paid? Like what was the kind of after effects of lifting those? We didn't have that much. If we're just I think we just got the tenants out that didn't pay and we're just happy to just kind of just take that hit and just kind of move on. In LA, the eviction process is so hard that you're never going through the full eviction. You're basically settling before the eviction court. So you're paying them certain amount of money to move out. We deal with high-end tenants with kind of 
high credit score. So you basically have to make at least 70,000 a year and we take at least the 650. So we don't have those issues as much as maybe someone was dealing with kind of lower end tenants. But I think with lower end, you would just take that hit, but we didn't have that many issues. On and you project. could still at least turn their credit into a credit agency. So it at least dings their credit report. So it shows up to the next person they go try and rent from, right? I mean, if you don't, like I hear Napfolio, you could turn that on where they could report that. Right now, we weren't doing that. And I just spoke to my business partner. I think we might start reporting credit. But at the end of the day, you're always settling before the eviction. With them, they're moving out. So then they don't have an eviction that hits their credit. All right. I have to ask this one question that came in on Twitter. It said, if Artem were to merchant build apartments on 50th percentile site to basic acceptable standards for affordable housing, then sell to government at acceptable profit, what current price would that be as compared to the approximate 750K unit it's costing the government to build affordable housing right now? So I don't know what 50% affordable, a 50% I didn't site, know what that meant site means, but I'll tell you this. So the government builds affordable units. They build the shittiest product in the most expensive way possible <laughs> using union labor. So they're coming in at like, it's not even 750. I think it could be 750 to a million bucks, depending on where. And the city just bought two of our buildings for 30 million. And we were all in probably like 350 per unit on those. And they bought for, they bought them for like something like 430, 440 a piece. So they bought them for half the price that they're building them for. So the smart thing would be to actually buy buildings from market rate developers, but there's a law they can't go into future contracts with them because if they're doing that, they have to use union labor. Mm. So they're allowed to build completed projects and get funded, but they're not allowed to uh, kind of go into future contracts. The smart thing would be to sub it out, but the unions have a stronghold on California and they don't they don't let that happen. So we're building apartments right now, just bid out a two bedroom building, nice part in the neighborhood. You're between 500 and 550 all in per unit if you're paying like 100,000 per land per door. And we're all in at that amount, and they're all in at eight hundred thousand to a million nonprofit. So when you're saying we need more affordable housing at cheaper costs, but you have to use union labor, that doesn't tend to. And on top of it, work. they're also building. I don't understand why you have to build affordable units in say Santa Monica near the ocean. Why you can't get the land cheaper and just provide housing in cheaper areas and deliver more units in cheaper areas? The whole thing. Just it's just a bureaucracy. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense. And like I said, like back from Russia, the government doesn't do anything efficiently. And you know, the architects on those jobs, they'll probably charge four X because no one's paying for it. It's the government that's paying for it. There's nothing better than a government contract. Yeah. All right. Markets kind of wacky. Interest rates are up, costs are up, rents haven't gone up as much. You're in the business of doing deals. What's it going to take? Like, what? Where do you sit right now? Like, what does the next few years look like for you? You know, we're, we're trying to look at that. So we have a our, you know, we're basically should have our Texas site entitled in the next two months. It's a 400 unit project in East Austin, probably solves those five, nine, six yield on cost. A year ago, that deal would 100% easily get funded. All the private equity shops now want to be six and a quarter, six and a half. Some might say they're seven. They're basically saying they don't want to do development. So I don't know. You literally have to kind of let the project sunbathe a little bit. I think there's still family offices that are still playing in the space. They don't have the same mindset as institutions. So we're looking at here. 
There's people from South America that want to get money out of there. They're still putting projects in American deals. So we're looking, we're trying to fund anything we can. A lot of the problem is a lot of the families we dealt with after what happened during COVID, they're investing across the country. They hate California. A lot of the, like I'd say 80% of the institutions we talked to hate California. They passed the mansion tax, ULA tax, which is basically used to be half a percent transfer tax. Now it's 6%. So if you're building with a 20% margin and you're taxed 6% on a gross sales price, that's 25% of your profit gone. So all the institutions just don't want to touch Los Angeles right now up until hopefully that gets repealed. And it's challenging. So we still believe in Los Angeles long-term because there's going to be way less supply that comes online. And there's still about 50,000 people that are moving yeah. in into LA. It's, it's still that glamorous city like New York that everyone's going to want to go to. So we're going to see a lot of, I think, rent growth in the next 10 years. So we want to build and keep, but it can't be an IRR driven kind of today. You can't underwrite an exit and going in. So it's just a different set of investors, different set of underwriting. It almost has to be like Moses type of money where yeah. it's long-term, you build it. You know, I have a site ready, almost ready to go. It's 28 units. We're going to be all in at 560 per unit. I don't know what they're worth now, but pre-COVID, they would have been worth seven, pre-rate run-up, they would have been worth 760 per unit. Right now, with today's rates, who knows? Because the only trades that are happening are kind of distressed ones. People that have to sell, people that don't have to sell aren't selling. But long-term, we're very bullish on LA. We yeah. think it's very... If you can add supply, I think it's going to go up more than anything else, but it's very hard to grow. What it, like you said it, you have a business, you built a business that like actually does deals. Me and my business partner still do deals. So for us to grow that type of business, we have to be in the institutional space with bigger fees coming in to hire the MBAs to do the deals. And we see that at the opportunity in Sunbelt markets. I see it in red states. And I don't ever want to do business outside of California and the blue state again. I think it's just too hard, too complicated. There's too much brain damage. Texas, I think I ended up in Austin, which is kind of like the California of, <laughs> uh, of Texas. And my site was bordering Austin and Travis County. So I had to deal with both Travis County and Austin during COVID. So it, uh, it wasn't as fast as I estimated the project to be. Someone's like, oh, you could get it done in like a year and a half. It's going to be about two years till we're there, but at least there's no threat of environmental lawsuits and legal fees that could take it for 10 years. So we're bullish on Texas. I think Texas looks like what California did after World War II, where there's just a lot of industry, a lot of people moving. People could live here and have a nice lifestyle with average, you know, kind of income and you could have a house, you could send your kids to good schools. That's just not possible in California. So our goal is to basically build out a Dallas office and basically have that be our headquarters, start kind of a Texas division, focus on doing institutional deals there, keep what we go in there, build about a hundred million of projects per year, just build and keep, not merchant build, and then truly build a business that develops. You talk about kind of that ideal of building an actual company where we were just deal guys with a bunch of helpers yeah. where... I want to build an actual company. And people are like, oh, you have to hire people smarter than yourself. And I was like, well, you need a lot of fees for that. And we didn't have any fees coming in. So that's kind of the goal for the next 10 years. I love it. Well, I think that's a good way to, to bring this home because if where we started this conversation, just listen to your story, there's 
just no doubt that the next, what, what you're trying to do is probably one of the easier things you've done in your life. And so if you are a DFW first and listening to this, call them. I would love to have you in Dallas or DFW developing. This this conversation was awesome. Thank you. Thank and you I really appreciate me. you coming on today. I appreciate you having me. This was fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 